0: Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Kevin Jonason. I represent Appellant David Launderville. We're here today because qualified immunity protects Officer Launderville's split-second decision to use force to restore order during a disturbance that was caused by Mr. Fisherman. Record establishes that Mr. Fisherman actively resisted commands to return to his knees, threatened corrections officers, he was combative, and tried to spit at officers during a struggle, all while his legs were not restrained maintaining security nor order are paramount in ensuring the safety of individuals inside a prison. When faced with inmates who actively resist officer commands, officers are put in high stress, volatile, dangerous situations and must make split second decisions to restore order and security. Officer Launderville was faced with such a situation. In June of 2021, correction staff found a shank in Mr. Fisherman's cell. This necessitated his transfer to a cell in a more restrictive unit. Now, Mr. Fisherman was already in the most restrictive prison uh, operated by the DOC, and he was in the second most restrictive unit inside that prison, and he was being transferred to the most restrictive unit inside that prison. In the process of getting Mr. Fisherman out of his cell to begin his escort, staff told him at least four times prior to opening the door to remain on his knees as the door opened so that staff could more easily control his movements and actions. As the door opens, Fisherman immediately tries to stand up, Officer Launderville, Officer Launderville says, nope, down. As the door opens and staff attempt uh, and, and Mr. Fisherman fights off staff attempts to get him to return to his knees. In a matter of 40 seconds after the door is opened, staff tell Mr. Fisherman 14 times he needs to return to his knees. It's 18 seconds after the door opens that Mr. Fisherman begins to yell Nimi nee, in the face again, taunting officers. Mr. Launderville, Officer Launderville is entitled to qualified immunity for two reasons. First, his alleged conduct was not malicious and statistic under these circumstances. Second, and alternatively, he's entitled to qualified immunity because neither the district court nor Mr. Fisherman have pointed to a case that squarely governs this matter such that an officer in uh, and Officer Launderville's position would know that the alleged conduct was unconstitutional in this specific context.
1: Council, I just have a question about the the cells here—the one he was transferred from, and the one he was going to be transferred to. House, I've actually visited Oak Park Heights and spent the day there, and and I and one of the parts of the tour was the most restrictive part of the prison, and I remember those cells pretty vividly. Are the are the cells in the second most restrictive unit, the one he was in, pretty similar to the ones in the most restrictive unit? And maybe you don't know.
0: That's not in the record. I, I've toured it too, and I, I don't I don't recall either.
2: Your Honor. What about the fact that in this situation, um, the uh, uh, plaintiff's arms were out the, 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 uh, the I don't know what it's called, the book pass-through, they're in place. Uh, he's being held, so he can't move. He can't get anything, and it's a metal door. He's not getting any further away from anywhere he is uh, to sort of standing up on his haunches and not doing much of anything else, right? I mean, um, which you know and then the, let's be perfectly blunt the video doesn't show us much what we hear uh is is what the video tells us because point of view on that particular video is not particularly useful right because there's a whole bunch of officer bodies in between uh the uh, uh Mr. Fisherman and uh and the camera and so all you see are what the officers are doing and the running commentary but you don't really see at all the nature of the resistance that that Launderville has, but but given all of that, why isn't this just a fact? A series of fact questions for the jury, as Judge Blackwell found.
0: Well, I think I think to your first point about what to make of his of his hands being through the book pass uh, throughout the incident. Uh, you know, when you watch the video, you can see that his hands are not through the book pass from about the 558 mark to the 628 mark. He is in handcuffs, but his hands are off to the side, and they're not through the book pass as they were prior to that moment. So uh, he is in handcuffs, but but they are not uh, where they should be, which is the book pass. And that's shown on the
1: video, just to be clear?
0: That is on the video from, from from the 558 point to the 628 point. And then Officer Barnum comes in. He's wearing a hat, and then he... Grabs uh, uh, Mr. Fisherman's hands and holds him through the book pass while the leg restraints are being applied.
2: But that's when all of the alleged, like the the blows to the face, takes place, right? Is is that that once is they're they're there, you know? Because I think that that because you can't see what happens, uh, what you do know is you can see that that uh, that. Uh, Uh, There is a knee that comes forward from one of the officers, I forget which, which uh, seems to have brought everybody down a little lower, so it seems like they effectuated the move to get him sort of back to his knees at that point. And then there's the comment, and I don't remember exactly what he says, you hit me in the face again, bitch, or something like that. Um, You know, and, And that seems to be the moment in which the conflict is taking place. And, and, and am I right that at that point his hands are through the book pass? Because, you know, I haven't looked at it five minutes ago, so I don't recall, but I seem to recall that.
0: Uh, I, I, I don't know if you can discern whether his hands are through the book pass um, prior to the 558 point. They start through the book pass. I think then people come in front of the door and you're, you're not able to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say, though, that... that he begins to start saying, uh, knee me in the face again, bitch, 12 seconds after the door is open. Um, And and it is clear from the video that there is a struggle to get him down to his knees because that officer that you mentioned doesn't enter the video until about the 610 mark. And that's when you say everything lowers. And so we're talking about from the, what, 534 mark to the 610 mark. And it's 12 seconds after 534 that he starts saying, knee me in the face again. So I think we're at about 22 more seconds of a struggle to get him to... To get down to his knees, um, and 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 as he's saying this, there's no indication that there is a, a you know, it's clear that there's there that there's no uh, after order is restored that there is no knee strikes being delivered because he's he, again he's mocking and taunting officers and he's talking about being kneed in the past tense, um, and, and so from the from the video, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's established that. There is a struggle that after that struggle is is over and order is restored. Um, well, staff are professional throughout the whole time and calm throughout the whole time, but there's no more sudden movements. I mean, I, I'll give you that staff are, seem annoyed, and I think that's understandable, but there, there's no you know there's no cursing. They're, they're, they're just telling him, you need to get back on your knees. You need to get well, back on your Well, it does
2: seem knees. that the first officer is a little more confrontational, and I forget, is that launderman? Uh, and then the kind of... The more kind of the, the sort of trained special security group comes in, they are much more cordial, much more, you know, well, that notwithstanding, uh, you know, uh, fishermen's uh, uh, sort of uh, taunting and aggravating language, their response is always, we're not here to talk about that right now, just yep. that you get to your knees, you know. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, how that, how that goes. Um, and I don't know how much confrontation is, and, and comment is allowed when you're really directing a guy to do a bunch of things, turn on the lights, you know. Um, you know, uh, come closer, put your arms through the book pass, you know, listen to me, get to your knees, you know. And and so the first officer is trying to get, get him to do stuff. He's obviously slightly frustrated. Then when you get the other group of people who are there to sort of secure the situation, um, they may be equally frustrated, but they are much uh, less inclined to show it, right? So they're kind of operating with a different approach.
0: Um, um, well, I... I you know Officer launderville was part of of that emergency response team, and so you know, he knows when he 's responding he 's going to the second most restrictive unit in the most restrictive prison to transfer someone to the most restrictive unit, and he also finds out when he gets there that this whole process has been uh, a situation where Mr. Fisherman has been uncooperative, and it's actually Officer Launderville who who is able to uh, finally get the unclothed search done that's necessary after two officers were unsuccessful, which necessitated the ICS or the emergency response call. Um, and and I think that you know it, when we are looking at whether conduct is you know malicious and sadistic, it's important to note that. Eighth Amendment excessive force claims are not judged by what's reasonable or what could have been done differently. You know, these, these claims are judged by whether an officer's use of force was uh, without reason or cause and with only an intent to injure, or whether a, it was a good-faith effort to restore order.
1: What and, about the fact that um, here we have alleged, you know, and, and there's evidence to suggest that on one side that three blows to the head happened, and you have him saying, hit me the head again. Um, at some point, doesn't that create an issue about whether this is, that was sadistic, um, particularly given that there were multiple officers, particularly given that there was an alternative, which was, I think, a knee to the knee or a knee to the thigh or something like that, versus a knee to the head, which really isn't, isn't, I don't think it's allowed under policy unless things really get out of control
0: yeah and, and I know that the policy um i was just start with your last point the policy uh, you know at issue says that the that officers are allowed to use force you know but only the amount necessary to restore order um and I think that you know we uh you know have argued under the factual scheme that it that it was three knees to the head and three to the body um and that when you look at uh, the Whitley factors, that's what we look at to determine what is considered malicious. So it has to be malicious and sadistic. And the the threat perceived under the factors is is what I've been noting that that he's in the, in the second most restrictive unit. He's going to the most restrictive unit. He's been non compliant uh, with with uh, cooperation this whole time. And he's trying to stand up, and if he stands up, that's a, that's a really big problem. He needs to be on his knees so their staff can control his movements. And if he stands up, they have far less control, and he, and he has a, a chain attached to his, his his handcuffs, as I understand it. Um, and so, you know, that is the threat that's being perceived. Now, the need to use force uh, to in response to that threat. Well, he is not complying to with any of the commands that he needs to return to his knees. So, in that split second. Oscar, officer line determines I need to use force to gain order.
1: But at some point it crosses the line because I think you would agree that um, you know one of the guards can't just pull out a gun and say now you're compliant and shoot him in the head mm-hmm. um, or something like that. I mean, it, it's got to be a reasonable use of force. And I'm just trying to figure out not the knees to the body, but the knees to the head, whether they cross the line and look a little bit more like the use of deadly force. Yeah. And 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 you know, I I
0: I um, the, the, the remaining factors, I think, gets to that point. So it is the relationship of the use of force used uh, compared to the, the the threat perceived. So if we are talking about three knees to the head, uh, the threat perceived is that he's trying to stand up. And I think that it's very important in this situation to note that after this is all over and a nurse visits him, he doesn't complain about anything to do with his head. He complains about something on his hand. And I know that you know a lack of injury doesn't win the case for me. I think it's very, very, very important in this case because it goes to the last three factors of, of Whitley. You know, the, the fourth one being efforts to minimize force. Uh, I, I, you know, it's evident that that some efforts were used to minimize force. If the only complaint he has after this is is regarding his hand, and finally the fifth factor being uh, the actual injury. Well, again, that's his only complaint It's something to do with his hand. Um, and even if there there is a violation here, um, it is not clearly established. Uh, For two reasons, the the particular uh, violative conduct is nowhere near anything that the district court cited. I mean, the district court is citing cases where, um, well, first of all, one of them is a Fourth Amendment case, which is an easier standard for a plaintiff to satisfy, and that one's Kraut versus Gomer. Uh, Four to six times need, five to six times uh, punched, jumped on three to four times, um, all while he was subdued and no longer resisting. Well, Mr. Fisherman is not subdued and no longer resisting. He's struggling with staff. Um, and then, very briefly, Munz versus Michael is a very uh, similar situation um, where uh, you know he's passive. He to, he's seeking to cooperate, and then he slammed into a wall. And, and just the force used in those cases uh, compared to the cooperative nature of. Those individuals just is vastly different that it wouldn't put Officer Launderville on notice. And with that, Your Honor, um, I would request to reserve my time.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Lyonsberg. Uh,
3: thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Um, Andrew Lyonsberg for the appellee Corey Fisherman. I think the key point in this appeal, and, and largely a dispositive one, is the um, the question of the scope of what arguments are jurisdictionally before this court on this interlocutory appeal in the first place. Um, and the Supreme Court held in Johnson v. Jones, and this court has applied many times after that, that arguments that attempt to dispute the factual narrative accepted by the district court are uh, not properly part of an interlocutory qualified immunity appeal on the denial of summary judgment. Um, And and as the Supreme Court explained, there are good reasons for that limitation. Um, The court in Johnson considered the values underlying qualified immunity, including the view that, uh, in a sense, it's immunity from trial, not just from liability. Um, And it weighed those values as a categorical matter against the values underlying uh, a narrow scope of interlocutory appellate review uh, and and concluded as a categorical matter that um, the jurisdictional rule that we have is correct, that uh, abstract arguments about what the scope of the law is and what law was clearly established are permissible on an interlocutory uh, appeal, but arguments that um, ultimately contest the factual narrative accepted by the district court are not. Uh, and this court has applied that holding many times in cases quite like this one, um, and, and we pointed to the burnicle case, Mohammed v. Anderson, Thompson uh, uh, as well, where, um, as here, the the officers in those cases were attempting to, uh, uh, although they framed their arguments as qualified immunity arguments, they took as a premise of those arguments fact that facts that were, in fact, disputed. Um, so, you know, in Muhammad, the court said the court lacks jurisdiction. Quote: To consider an interlocutory summary judgment qualified immunity appeal
1: if at the heart of the argument is a dispute of fact. What about the fact that? Um, and I think we can take this into account. I, I don't remember Judge Blackwell mentioning this, but this is the worst of the worst prison in Minnesota. In Minnesota, there are these pe- these people, um, you know, multiple time murderers. Um, In a lot of states, they would be on death row, and states that have the death penalty. Is that something we can take into account when you have somebody moving from the second most restrictive to the most restrictive, that these guys knew that this this guy was dangerous, most likely?
3: I I don't think that's something that, in general, would be inappropriate to take into account. But I think the the nature of the clearly established violation here um, is, as the court explained, that violent force was used after Mr. Fisherman was restrained. Um, and, and to be clear, that is the narrative that the, the district court accepted, and, and any arguments that dispute that narrative are, are not before the court. Um, and that's exactly as in, you know, Bernico, Muhammad, uh, Thompson, um, and Thompson. Sorry, Uh I was uh, just going to say that, um, uh, again, the, the conclusion of the district court was that a, a reasonable jury could find that this force, at least uh, uh, three knees to the face, was applied after Mr. Fisherman was restrained, and I think the only in the
1: book pass was where his hands in the book pass when those when the when the, I mean is that sort of a, a fact that um, that we can't challenge here.
3: Uh, I think that is um, so. The conclusion was that he was restrained, and it yeah. is undisputed that it was uh, uh, at times, at, at least most of the time, through the book pass one of the facts that's not clear is precisely when these needs to face took place. So I think uh, part of the factual narrative is that uh, a jury could find that they took place, in fact, when they were through the book pass, and not only through the book pass, but restrained with a chain that another officer was holding onto. Um, And and to the point about his hands maybe not being through the book pass the whole time, which I think is is sort of beside the point because we don't know when the force was applied. Um, But I, I don't think there's a time at which an officer is not holding on to a chain attached to the handcuffs, regardless of where the hands are at that moment.
1: But you do you, you do understand that there's a huge difference between being immobilized through the book pass and being at the most dangerous prison in the state and having yes, handcuffed, but a chain essentially, you know, uh, hooked to you so that you could you could use it as a weapon.
3: Well, handcuffed with an officer holding on to that chain restraining the hands. Um, but again, I think the, the key point is that uh, uh, we don't know, and the video doesn't tell us at what point the force was used. So part of the factual narrative the court has to, to accept is that uh, it may have been while it was through the book thus.
2: You know, in Whitley, the Supreme Court told us that the word sadistically is not mere surplusage and that you have to take sadistically, um, well, here's what they exactly said. Maliciously and sadistically have different meanings, and the two together establish a higher level of intent than either would alone. And so that's the sort of legal framework that whatever's going on there has to, has to be weighed in. And one of the factors that under Whitley that you can consider is the extent of the injury inflicted, right? That's, um, that's right. You know, you know. If you take that all together, um, given uh, the lack of any significant injuries, really anywhere on his body, he leaves with a single Band-Aid, you know, um, and, uh, the, uh, uh the sort of, uh, claims that he's making while the incident's taking place, which would tend to indicate there's a much larger infliction of, of injury going on than there may have appeared at the end. Um, do we have to take all those inferences that, that the court talks about in Whitley, uh, in the light and the way that, uh, Judge Blackwell viewed them in his opinion?
3: Uh, well, so directly answer your question, yes, I think that the, the court does have to go with what uh, Judge Black. Yeah, we have accepted. to we have to
2: take his findings of fact, right? Um, mm-hmm. But there are some inferences being drawn there, and. Um, as well, right and and if we look at I, mean, I, I know that you can't look at injuries and say, "Well, the lack of injury alone gets rid of the case, but in this case, you've got howling and screaming and you know uh, some representations that see that 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 might be just setting up this very lawsuit, right I mean. Well so I think importantly on the
3: jurisdictional restriction it's not just that the court can't look to the fact or look beyond the facts that judge Blackwell uh, assumed but the ultimate question of whether those facts um, um, could be found by a jury to be true okay um, and uh, and on the injury point i I want to be clear um, after the course the Supreme Court's 2010 decision um, uh, in a case whose name I am is escaping me uh, it 's entirely clear that the um, extent of injury is relevant only in as it goes to the extent of the force actually used that 's the ultimate question yeah
2: it 's to whether it 's malicious and sadistic right the extent of you know because isn 't that at some level the measure of the the, 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 the force i mean I think we 're looking at it malicious it 's got to be willful wanton um, you know um, uh, Unnecessary, uh, sadistically means intentionally designed to to impose injury or to humiliate or cause one to suffer, and you got to pull that all together there, right?
3: Right, and and what the court held in Wilkins v. Gatti, which is the name of the, the case I was misremembering, um, is that the the injury and the amount of force used is is Imperfectly correlated. So, if someone mm-hmm. is seriously injured, then you can you can yeah, infer it, that yes, it was a serious amount of force used. But what the court said there is that a prisoner who is quote gratuitously beaten by guards, but you know by luck escapes without a serious injury, there there's no uh, uh, problem to a, a, an Eighth Amendment violation there. Um, and I think that describes exactly this case as the facts uh, uh, were construed by the district court um, that that a reasonable jury could find um I, we've talked uh, at length in our brief about you know what the quali- excuse me the, the clearly established law says um i think it's pretty clear that what it says is that when once a a prisoner is not and is no longer um a threat and is under control is restrained is subdued um that any amount of violent force applied at that point is clearly established as unlawful um and uh Part of that is that the fact that he may have been combative previously uh, does not justify force once that combativeness ends. And uh, uh, importantly, on um, this view of the facts, it had ended at the time when the force was applied. Um, If the court doesn't have any questions about uh, the clearly established law, I'd I'd like to say just a a couple of words about Scott v. Harris, um, which is, as the court is aware, the exception that allows um, the court to look at the video and decide if the, the view of the facts accepted by the district court is blatantly contradicted by the video. Um, I, I think initially uh, we'd submit that any reliance on Scott V. Harris has been forfeited because it arises for the first time in the reply brief. Um, and that's not sort of a, a technical violation because I think we'd have quite a, a lot to say about this court's decisions uh, interpreting Scott V. Harris and, and talking about when a video does blatantly contradict uh, a district court's factual determination. So I, I can cite a couple of cases here. These are not in our briefs, but that is because Scott V. Harris was raised for the first time in the reply brief. Um, so this court has held repeatedly that where, as, as your honor was saying, there is a video, but it's basically blocked. And you can't see... Um, you know, the key events unfolding, they're not visually on screen, um, that that is not a, a Scott v. Harris case, that uh, under those circumstances, the video cannot blatantly contradict uh, the district court's factual narrative. So that would be uh, Edwards v. Byrd, that's 750 F3rd, 728, Michael v. Trevina, 899 F3rd, 528, and Cheeks v. Belmar, 80 F4th, 872. Um, all of those cases are... are Basically, the same scenario here, where the officers are um, making factual contentions that, if true, would uh, make their their force justified. Um, But the court concluded, in all of those cases, that, well, blatantly contradicted is a a high standard, and it's not met here. Um,
2: Yeah. um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to put that in a 28J letter, because everybody who sits where I'm sitting always does that. So I'm asking you to do it.
3: Uh, Absolutely, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, if the court has no further questions, um, I would ask that the court either dismiss the appeal or affirm.
2: Thank you. Your rebuttal, Mr. Jonasson, when you're ready.
0: Uh, thank you, Your Honors. Uh, the first thing I want to get into is—is is any argument that the video uh, is uh, conclusively establishes. Uh, what happened in this matter was not waived. Uh, you know, throughout the principal brief, you know, I, I go throughout the district court's conclusion as to uh, how these allegations can be inferred that that force was delivered after restraint was was uh, directly contradicted by the video. I cite the video continuously throughout my brief, and I talk about how the record establishes that this was not malicious and sadistic. So I, I, I would I would contend that Scott was most definitely not waived. Um, and to that point, this court can absolutely trust what it sees and hears when it watches the video. You don't need to accept the district court's framing uh, where the district court's framing contradicts what you see and hear in the video. Uh, and I think I made my point as to what's going on there. Um, and, and it's clear that there's no force used after order is restored in this case. Uh, because uh, I think I said 12 seconds after the struggle begins. I, I checked it's 18 seconds after the struggle begins. is when he first starts saying, knee me in the face again. And I think that it's another... Um, several seconds after that, um, from the I think five fifty-two point to the six ten-ish point, uh, until that officer that Judge Erickson pointed out comes into the side and and everything lowers down. Um, so he's yelling about being need in the face well before that that point of them being lowered down. Um, and I think when you look at this, too, this is not—trust uh, what you see in here in the video. This is not a gratuitous beating. This is a good-faith effort to restore order. Um, and I, I just want to clarify, too, that Wilkins, um, you know, it, it is established that um, uh, lack of an injury does not uh, win for the defendants every case. But I would like to point out, too, that, that, that Wilkins was talking about lack of a serious injury. Uh, there was no mention about lack of an injury, period. Um, in that case. So with that, I would ask that this court overrule the district court and grant Officer Launderville qualified immunity. Thank you. Thank
3: you.